Hey everybody, welcome back to the Intervention Podcast. This is Levi, and I hope you're all doing just well. We've recorded this entry into our New Deal series with Anders Lee of Poddam America all the way back on October 9th. We've since turned our full attention to remastering and producing episodes to do our small part to combat disinformation on Palestine, Zionism, and empire, because it's being weaponized across Western media to justify the grotesque bombardment of Gaza. In this episode on the New Deal Congress, the discussion consistently turned to the thin line between overt fascism and the governing master race ideology of American liberalism. Palestine and Israel are never far from our minds, as we've watched a so-called liberal Israeli state expand their actions towards the mass ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. We all must now struggle with how we hold our movements responsible in determining when that line between liberalism and fascism is crossed, and how we must react when people cross that line. We stand with black lives, with trans lives, with native people, with the people of Palestine, with humanity against the savagery of exploitation and master race democracy. In a bright spot, the music for this episode has changed to Fear City in celebration of the latest recording by Plasmid, the punks who make the music for our show. Their release, EP3, dropped Friday, October the 13th, and can be found on Spotify and purchased through Bandcamp. Thanks again for listening. Free Palestine. Hello and welcome to the Intervention Podcast. This is Nick here with Levi, but we're also joined by journalist, organizer, and co-host of the great Pod Damn America podcast, Anders Lee. Anders, thanks for joining us tonight, man. So happy to be Anders Lee here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say it like that. But no, we're, we're happy to have you. We're back tonight, and I think, Levi, you reached out kind of inspired by a recent piece that Anders put out in Jacobin. We actually referenced it in one of our earlier episodes, but we're back to talk about the New Deal. And we're going to look at the concept of master race democracy and how that factored into the results of the New Deal, the legislation and the organizing around it. So with that, I'll just turn it over to you, Levi, and we can get into it. As stated in the first episode, we're most interested in probing the movements who took advantage of or were squashed because of the widespread legislative changes of the New Deal. Except as they were relevant for their irony, tragedy or comedy, we're not so interested in the lives or triumphs of real politics which occurred among the political elites who crafted this legislation. They don't need excuses because they won. They saved capitalism. As covered in the second episode, the motivation for the actions of Congress and the executive came up from below, from the militant rank and file, the common person devastated by the collapse of the Great Depression, those hungry and out of work. This episode thus will be considering how the New Deal executed on the federal government's desire to pick up, again borrowing from Lenin, the power lying in the streets. While I'm sticking to our promise that we're not going to please great men or consider the triumphs of real politic, it is important to understand how federal structures from above played a role in shaping the literal New Deal legislation, its possibility, and its failures, even within their own stated goals. This episode argues the New Deal, rather than passing Congress in spite of racism, existed because of racism. New Dealers crafted their legislation by drawing on the fear of the possible demise of American liberal democracy, 
the fear of equality for black peoples and a visceral horror of mechanized war within an exceptional moment in time. Understood as such, the defense of the Southern master race democracy, wherein only whites participate in public political life, existed not as an aberration of the New Deal, but rather a foundational principle of the congressional coalition which passed the legislation. This racist power structure made passing the New Deal possible within the limits of the Constitution, while at the same time limiting the potential of this same legislation. Because of this core contradiction, the New Deal as a revolutionary legislative moment became both possible and impossible. A great hope and a great disappointment. A great achievement and a great failure. All those dialectics. Right? What do we hear? Marxists? (laughs) I am not arguing racial progress failed to occur. That would be an overstatement. Rather, I argue the structures of the master race democracy provided a serious limit to the revolutionary potential to legislative revolutionary change. To provide coherence to this episode, I've relied most upon the work of four historians who approach the history of the New Deal from perspectives which consider larger movements, systems, and intellectual traditions. Like the previous episode on individualism, I revisited Jefferson Cowie in Nick Salvatore's article, The Long Exception, which Cowie turned into the monograph, The Great Exception, which argued the New Deal represented an exception to American traditions of racism, nativism, classism, anti-statism, and individualism, which regressive forces began to claw back even before President Roosevelt signed the legislation. Ira Katzenson, in Fear Itself, argued a reactive fear, rather than knowledge and understanding, motivated Congress to craft the New Deal, exacerbating the fundamental contradictions even within its own logic of liberal social democracy. While K.K. Patel's The New Deal, A Global History, placed the legislation of the New Deal into an international comparative framework, to better consider the New Deal within statist responses to the Great Depression around the globe and within the larger American empire. I'll begin by describing how the most racist constituencies came to hold overwhelming power in Congress, look at landmark labor legislation as an example of this constituency's power to curtail radical legislation, consider the benefits made for race relations through the New Deal, and wrap up by examining the backfired attempt of Nazis to take advantage of America's racism to their own wartime benefit. Throughout, I expect we'll be pulling this into discussions on the ever-ongoing relationship leftists should have with a Congress which is still, by and large, operating on an ideology hostile to workplace, economic, and true political democracy. Before we jump into the details of this history of Congress, I'd like to ask what value does considering this top-down perspective have, if any, in terms of better understanding the political lessons of the New Deal for organizing and agitating today? Well, I think that's a, it's an important question, um, and I certainly understand and share the skepticism of great man theory, because I think liberals tend to view history through that lens and solely that lens. But I also think history is very contingent, and a lot of those contingencies do rest on individuals. You know, I think you look no further than the, the, the Russian Revolution and Lenin, Maurice Bishop, uh, or even you know, someone like Abraham Lincoln. Who knows what would have happened had he not been uh, in power going into the 1860s? And we probably, if he had lived, would be living in a much better country right now than the one that uh, Andrew Johnson left us. 
as you said earlier, dialectics. I think that's, you know, maybe an overused term, but I think it is important to look at history as having many facets. And I do think contingency and, and individuals are, are one among several. And I think one point that we've been making continually on this series and probably at multiple points in our podcast is that, yes, I mean, these great individuals do exist in the moment. I think Lenin is like the quintessential example of somebody really taking it on. But like, his impetus is coming from the movement that he's part of, from the people's movement that he's part of, right? Right. Like Lincoln's views on slavery changed because people were in his ear talking, people in the abolitionist movement, people like Frederick Douglass, who represented a whole mass of people, right, were influencing his mind and his decision. So yes, he had to be there to make that decision, but he wouldn't have had to make any decision at all if he wasn't being pushed in that direction by a movement. Right. Right, even the example of Abraham Lincoln, he was somebody that was actually willing to and studied the responses of the soldiers at war. Because his initial motivation was not to end slavery. It was only after soldiers going through the slave South and fighting for the Union did he actually begin to speak in that language to the soldiers, to the mass constituency that overwhelmingly voted him back into office in 64. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, who knows like what was in his head? I'm sure by modern standards, he would be considered racist, certainly when it comes to indigenous people. But I do think it, there is a certain level of deafness, even with the social forces clashing around you. To navigate that does require a lot of, yeah, real politique and skill that I think we should recognize as well. Since we're sort of talking about that with politicians, I guess I personally care far less about their personal morality if they're really willing to craft and push legislation that provides solutions for working people that really make this country more livable, help us push for more. I don't really care what's in Joe Biden's mind, uh, if anything's still rattling around in there. <laughs> there lack thereof. But. <laughs> but if he's willing to go out and walk with the striking workers at the UAW, I mean, that's a good step. We'll take what we can get. I don't care if he wouldn't piss on them if they were on fire, but if he does the work, it works. Mm -hmm. Not that I expect much more from him, though. Right. But to your point also, you know, I think it's, um, in that example, very relevant that the UAW still hasn't endorsed him. So if at this point now, if that if they had like a, right. a few months ago, he probably there's a good chance he wouldn't be walking that picket line. And that's the yeah, thing. They're pushing him to be there. Yeah. Can't have any faith that these leaders are going to make the right choice. You have to force them to make the right choice. Yeah. Even from like just a more general view of why I think we should understand this top-down history, especially in like our specific context, from organizing perspective and a radicalization perspective, I really think you, if you understand this history, you can kind of better expose how like bureaucracy of this capitalist system, while maybe you can still get some gains, still ultimately dilutes the absolute demands of the movements as well as it's filtered through these various systems and so-called checks and balances. The demands of the people can never truly be met in the economic or racial realm with this system instantiated as it is. And I think if you can demonstrate that, you know, block by block or blow by blow, you can show people more effectively. I know that's really broad in general, but. The worst thing that's going to happen with that strategy is you accidentally get what you want. Mm -hmm. So it's a win-win strategy, really. Yeah. And I think, yeah, like a lot of the things that are embedded in kind of the palace intrigue stuff, they do end up having a major impact in people's everyday lives. There's a relationship between those two things, too, the on-the-ground reality and the strange and bizarre and evil uh, system that can shape it. 
Yeah, the more they understand that their leaders are not really looking out for them, the more they understand that they got to push it for themselves. Yeah. Just because the title of this episode is going to be the Master Race Democracy, which you've already introduced as a concept. And I just want to introduce a theoretical framing for that concept so people can think about it as we're going through this episode. So I recently finished the book, and I know you read it as well, Levi. And Anders, I don't know if you've picked this up, but I recommend it. But it's called Liberalism, a Counterhistory by Domenico Lacerdo. He kind of just works through the material and theoretical developments of liberalism as an ideology, focusing on England and France, and then obviously bringing in America as America becomes a sovereign nation. I want to pull a quote from here that pertains to how liberalism was kind of theorized. I think it sums it up pretty well as it relates to this concept of master race democracy. Lucero says, perhaps the author who in England best expressed the ideal of master race democracy was Algernon Sidney. His insistency on the equality of free men was very marked. Quote, the equality in which men are born is so perfect that no man will suffer his natural liberty to be abridged except others do the like. End quote. Continuing with Lacerdo, definitive is his condemnation of political slavery, inherent not only in absolute monarchy, but also in any political regime that claimed to subject the free man to laws decided without his consent. But this pathos of liberty implied the demand for the master's right to be judge of his own servant without outside interference. One should not lose sight of the fact that, quote, in many places, even by the law of God, the master hath a power of life and death over his servant. And there he was quoting Sidney again. It was understood that, quote, the base and effeminate Asiatics and Africans, incapable of understanding the value of liberty, were rightly regarded by Aristotle as slaves by nature and little different from beasts. Not by chance, together with Locke, Fletcher, and Berg, Sidney was indicted by Jefferson as a leading authority for understanding the, quote, general principles of liberty that inspired the United States. So just to make the point that this is the ideology that is the foundation of the nation. You know, we hear about Jeffersonian democracy. This is the language, this is the thinking that this guy was citing as fundamental to the construction of the documents that still govern our state today. And inherent in that is understanding who these free men are that they're talking about. The free men are the bourgeoisie the community of the free. And that has changed over time and it's grown, but there's always this base relationship of class and race in this country that we have to contend with. And I hope that adds something to the conversation that we're going to have here today. It's right there in the founding document. It's life, liberty, and property. Mm. I mean, it's covered as the pursuit of happiness, but people know that means property. The coming out of the Civil War and Reconstruction era the federal government left the former Confederacy to rebuild their own limited democracy hostile to the political participation of black people. This positioned the Democratic Party, the ruling party of the southern states going back to the antebellum period, as the lily-white party which stood against the overreach of federal authority and wage slavery embodied in the Republican Party of Lincoln. And this is the myth, of course. Because of this structural advantage, a disproportionate number of these racist southern Democrats known collectively as the Dixiecrats, held the chairs of near every powerful Senate and House committee. During the 1920s, when the Democratic Party faced a string of defeats on the federal level, the Dixiecrats represented a bulwark. This so-called Solid South delivered Democratic congressmen in every election and in almost every district. The enormous National Democratic Party electoral gains of 1932 
and then the landslide election of 1934 meant most of the Democratic Party congressmen who walked through the Capitol did so as freshmen among the elder statesmen of the former Confederacy. These elder Democrats took advantage of their seniority and party roles to install themselves and their allies into the chairmanships of important committees. From these perches of power, they could unilaterally kill any bill in committee which offended even a remote threat to their master race democratic order. Senator Theodore Bilbo of Mississippi represented the embodiment of Dixiecrat political sensibilities. He chaired the Senate Committee on the Governance of the District of Columbia, a relatively minor committee. Southern historian Chester Morgan in 1985 argued Bilbo represented the, quote, most effective evangelist of New Deal liberalism. But he added the caveat, quote, so long as the rights of the people of his state were not infringed, and by the people of his state, it's a not so subtly coded racial word. Bilbo styled himself on the campaign trail as a, quote, Baptist, a dry, and a Ku Klux Klansman, who once fumed from the Senate floor, quote, the white man throughout all time is the superior race, the ruling race, the race of creating power, the race of art, the race of literature, the race of music that moves the soul. I think at this point we have to ask the question because he's described as a New Deal liberal through and through. Is this guy a liberal or is he a fascist? Perhaps it's a mix of both. Mm. It's one of those tricky questions because he's working within a system and a Democratic Party that is not itself interested in promoting outright fascism. If another person was president that was willing to use those executive powers to enforce a racialized concept, would he be behind them as well? It's alternative history, but it's important to understand that these Congress people are at the whims of political motions. Right. I mean, it's because around this time, there was, as I'm sure you guys know, the coup attempt against Roosevelt from the fascist right, the business plot. I appeared before the Congressional Committee, the highest representation of the American people under subpoena to tell what I knew of activities, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. The plan as outlined to me was to form an organization of veterans, to use as a bluff or as a club at least, to intimidate the government and break down our democratic institutions. The upshot of the whole thing was that I was supposed to lead an organization of 500,000 men which would be able to take over the functions of government. But I'm not sure to the extent that was actually connected to the Jim Crow South. I think they were kind of, as far as I know, ambivalent towards Southern Democrats and the apartheid system. Yeah, I think I would probably call him a fascist if he's supporting the South at that time, could accurately describe as a fascist locale. The proper fascist movement was kind of in, in a different place almost. You had all these different competing interests and factions in American politics bumping up against each other and some overlapping and then others totally at odds. I think a word you use there is really interesting. You, you consider the South an apartheid state, and I think that's pretty accurate. And the notion that you can have a democratic state with an apartheid regime is just such a politically salient question. Mm. And to go back to the business plot, it really was a northern plot. I believe it even involved yeah. Prescott Bush, I believe great-grandfather of the second President Bush, grandfather of President... Connecticut Yankee. Yes, before yeah. he started using his southern drawl. 
Prescott Bush was actually too much involved with the actual Nazi party in Germany to be involved with the business plot. Bush was a partner at Brown Brothers Harriman, and uh, Brown Brothers Harriman was the subject of a different investigation by the same congressional committee, because that committee's uh, ambit was to investigate all forms of sort of fascist influence and all attempts to, you know, subvert American democracy. Right. The connection is not with the business plot, but it's a good point that if there was a Southern attempt at overthrowing Roosevelt, like, say, the Louisiana senator that attempted mm. was speaking of throwing out Roosevelt, you could imagine that constituency, those representatives falling in line behind somebody with that demeanor. Right, which was a very uh, live possibility as well. And uh, going into 36, uh, Huey Long was going to, I think he was going to primary Roosevelt from the left on a lot of economic issues. And the masses of America, 75 to 80 to 85 percent of the people not only give up their property year after year, but they go further and further and further into economic slavery to where the flesh and blood of the born and the unborn will never be able to raise the debt, let alone come back and re rescue the properties that they've lost from these depressions. And I don't know too much about Huey Long. I'm assuming like a white politician from Louisiana in the 1930s was it was probably not the most enlightened on civil rights so i guess that would be an example of that contradiction i'm just saying you had individuals like charles collin that were incredibly popular and vocal about his beliefs with sort of the mask off that he had these incredibly economic populist even communist ideals but as a catholic priest he was also extremely restrictive on social rights and an outright anti-Semite, which makes it a lot easier to call somebody like that a fascist or even a Nazi sympathizer. Mm. Whereas somebody like Huey Long is actually a really complicated figure. And I think it's because of these contradictions within the master race democracy that he's willing to state his campaign slogan was. That's fine, but aren't you going to sing it? Uh, since we've changed that uh, last line to mean every girl a queen. All right, I'll be glad to. Thank you. Every man a king, every girl a queen. For you can be a millionaire But there's something belonging to others There's enough for all people to share It was something that appealed to the people on the street. Out of context, it is a very radical statement. You know, we would look at that statement in isolation and say, that guy's a fascist, right? But in the broad history of liberalism, that kind of language is not mutually exclusive from the ideology of liberalism. I mean, we know that liberalism is bound up in racialized colonialism. And the people that wrote the theory of liberalism to kind of justify this primitive accumulation imbibe the same language. So, I mean, I think we see this coming out in this statement here. And I guess I would argue that wherever liberalism is instantiated, there is some element of a master race democracy where one group is excluded and there's stratifications within these groups potentially, right? Like they're still poor white working class people. But I mean, look at what's going on in Israel and Palestine right now, Levi, to your point of it being a salient question. I mean, it's not enough just to say for the Palestinians and the Israeli working class people to fight right now because Israeli working class, while that solidarity should exist, they're still benefiting disproportionately from a quote-unquote liberal democracy, which upholds their rights above Palestinians. 
So it is a master race democracy. And I think we see echoes of that in our system. Absolutely. Not even echoes, direct through lines, especially when you look at the indigenous population. It's cliche, but it's like a there but for the grace of God go I. These systems can always fall into scapegoating and faux populism that can lead to fascism. Hmm. I do want to state that I don't think the New Deal was a fascist movement in any overt way, but I want to say that there is a connection. At the same time, as a worldwide crisis of capital shook the halls of power, Bilbo campaigned as, quote, 100% for Roosevelt and 100% for the New Deal. The fear of the United States falling to the uncertainty of revolution, the fear that this revolution might unleash the pent-up power of racial equality, which the Southern elite like Bilbo feared might be a second black reconstruction, and the general fear of mass war forced him to reimagine the limits of liberal democracy. Though they knew the system needed significant changes, these representatives always articulated these changes within the limits of their racist ideology. Even in the 1920s and 1930s, the more cultured Southern media considered Bilbo an embarrassment, a buffoon. All the same, Bilbo's ideology, if not his blunt language, represented the Dixiecrat position. A contemporary commentator wrote that Senator Joseph Robinson of Arkansas supported the New Deal so long as the legislation, quote, fought the money power in the big industries, so long as they were pro-farmer and did not stir up the N-words. The media and party never scoffed at Robinson or assigned him a token chair of a committee. Rather, Robinson was the Senate majority leader. He, unlike Bilbo, never said the quiet part out loud. While it's rather easy to associate this master race democratic ideology with the former Confederacy, it infected the entire Democratic Party. No less than FDR himself wrote and spoke against, quote, the mingling of white with Oriental blood, end quote, and preserving other forms of, quote, racial purity. And this really comes out in his foreign policy more than in his domestic policy. The Northern New Dealers surrounding Roosevelt as his power grew from the New York aristocratic lineage, understood racist lawmakers represented the core congressional democratic bloc. They also wanted to protect liberal democracy from the lures of both communism and fascism. Thus, they crafted their legislation to assuage their fears to work with Congress rather than around Congress. Though the New Deal represented an unprecedented expansion of the powers of the executive, and the creation of an army of bureaucrats with little democratic accountability, the New Dealers did so through legislation, not dictatorship. Although tempted to declare a national emergency and roll by fiat, the New Dealers understood their mission was to save liberal capitalism, not create overt fascism. I mean, which to the point that we were talking about earlier, the plot, and the episode we did on the Grapes of Wrath where we talked about Gabriel over the White House, some of the, the moneyed powers, like William Randolph Hearst, that's what they wanted Roosevelt to do. Come in, declare a state of emergency, and just rule by decree to preserve the interests of the moneyed elite while still keeping the unwashed masses at bay. There was really popular discourse in which somebody like Mussolini was looked at across the ocean as a model for how America could be saved. Right. Which was the uh, model for the business plot 
uh, as well, I believe, is they specifically cited the March on Rome as like the template for what they wanted to do in the U.S. Uh, just a couple of years after the the Bonus Army. I think some people saw that and were like, ooh, we can use this for, for reactionary ends. Thankfully, they didn't. You just described the exact plot of Gabriel over the White House, which was William Randolph Hearst's actual movie that he produced to inspire Roosevelt to be the next Mussolini. Ooh. It's literally a stand-in for the Bonus Army. We 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 exactly. exactly. <clears throat> you have been told there is no chance of getting work. But I say there is work, necessary work, waiting to be done. I'm going to make you a proposition. You've been called the army of the unemployed. Your soldiers trained not in the arts of war, but in the greater arts of peace. Trained not to destroy, but to build up if someone will give you a job. I propose, therefore, to create an army to be known as the army of constructions. You'll be enlisted subject to military discipline. You'll receive army rates of pay. You'll be fed, clothed, and housed as we did our wartime armies. Gabriel over the White House? I'm going to have to watch this. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. It's no? really bad. <laughs> it's, it's tough. We watched some clips. Um, now, last episode we put out in this series, we, there's a couple of clips that can give you the gist if you don't want to subject yourself to the entire thing. Okay, so it's no Mr. <laughs> Smith goes to Washington. If Mr. Smith goes to Washington was a heaping pile of crap. <laughs> Baron Magazine's article on February 13th, 1933, which stated, A genial and lighthearted dictator might be a relief from the pompous futility of such a Congress as we have recently had. So we return repeatedly to the thought that a mild species of dictatorship will help us over the roughest spots in the road ahead. Sometimes openly, and other times secretly, we have been longing to see the Superman emerge. And this is a paper of record in the United States in 1933, actively talking about the alluring nature of fascism in Europe. It kind of reminds me, though, around this time, too, in 1933, I found this out recently, Keynes was, and this was just very brief, but he suggested when Roosevelt comes into office, nationalization, nationalizing industries, which is something Roosevelt refused to do. And I'm wondering if that was, in all likelihood, he just was a keen observer of the limits of his political project and didn't think that would, would work. But is there some sort of maybe core opposition to government, the state actually managing industries, or I wonder what course could have been taken if the New Deal had been, been further left. Interesting. Counter this, which I'm, I'm sure we're going to explore in a little bit. Yeah, hold on to that thought. Mm. So when writing legislation, the Northern Democrats often anticipated Southern backlash and thus cut out the more radical elements of their bills before even approaching the bargaining table. Unfamiliar? <laughs> Seriously. At best, these true believers knew the window for radical legislation might be shut at any moment, and so wanted legislation passed as fast as possible. At worst, the cynical New Deal lawmakers knew Dixiecrats made a convenient villain they might hide behind when pressed by the constituency to explain why Congress couldn't deliver in full on the New Deal's promises. Somewhere in the middle, New Deal Democrats might have understood the limits of American democracy and believed an incremental approach protecting the master race democracy for now represented the only way to preserve the union and help the most people. Any way you cut it, these represented the limited form through which the sausage of the New Deal transitioned from bottom-up pressure 
to top-down legislation. The landmark National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, known as the NRA, and this is the good NRA, (laughs) and Original Agricultural Adjustment Act, the AAA, went furthest in building a potential challenge to the structures of race and power across the country and thus stands as a case study for the successes and failures of the New Deal Congress. The acts allowed the government to subordinate private industry and agriculture to the interests of the federal government by setting production, pricing, and distribution. The bill also legalized unions by recognizing collective bargaining and the right of laborers to strike. According to Ira Kratznilson, quote, In undertaking the most assertive and thoroughgoing American attempt to restructure the economy under democratic auspices, they made use of the instruments that had largely been invented and sponsored by anti-democratic regimes by which he meant the Soviet Union. Further, he argued the acts may have actually set off a revolutionary transformation by forcing the state to intervene on behalf of the working class, represented by an empowered union movement across both industry and agriculture. The horror. The legislation passed as part of the whirlwind first 100 days, being written and made into law in less than a month. At that speed... The recalcitrant media and skeptical Dixiecrats had no time to even consider the possible long-term effects the acts might have had. In the short time, before lawsuits stayed the act's implementation, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, CIO, began an incredibly aggressive push in the industrial north to organize every single worker while the law still allowed it. The right-wing media warned the bill might democratize the workplace, though they preferred to claim anarchy rather than democracy and played up fears of black men joining and even leading empowered unions. Large agricultural interests in the South bemoaned the possibility of union drives heading South. Agriculture represented the largest sector of the South's economy, and also the one in which a vast majority of the black population worked. I think there is still like a hangover in terms of unionization across the Mason-Dixon today. Just as an example, I worked um, early on in a steel mill for a summer, I did an internship at a steel mill outside of Charleston, South Carolina. All of the big industry in the North, at least, or most of it is unionized as little as it is. America still has some manufacturing. I mean, there's car plants, there's still some in the North, but there's a lot of it in the South. And when I worked at this steel mill, one of the first things, one of like the kind of mid-level managers said to me there was that union is a bad word here. Hmm. Basically, they got people to buy in through quote unquote, profit sharing, right? So when the steel mill is doing good, you know, you get extra bonuses and everything like that, but your wage is tied to the fortunes essentially of the business, right? So when steel is bad, you don't get paid as much. But it was this ideology that permeated the entire place that, look, we're not going to get these, you know, great years if we're unionized. And I think that is something that persists throughout the entire South. And it's something that's, you know, it's an active project of the ruling class to prevent that from happening. So This doesn't even get to what you're talking about specifically with the racialized ideology, but I think it does play into it because of the South's history on racial terms. Yeah, and even remember 2019 Volkswagen, Mm. a plant in Tennessee that uh, had a union election, and a condition of building the plant, the governor of Tennessee said to the company, like, okay, we'll let you build this plant here as long as you make sure it doesn't go union. 
Uh, and he also, that governor came to a captive audience meeting, told the workers not to vote for it. So it's just amazing how how strong that, that sentiment can be all those years later. I spoke directly to the workers about our investments in workforce development, about how valuable their type of work is to our state. And I just want to stress that with my point and to your point as well, like that governor was not going in there saying like, don't you dare unionize. It's about, oh, this could be so much better for you if you don't. I think it's in the best interest of the workers of Volkswagen and really for the economics of our state that the Volkswagen plant stay a merit shop. It's almost much more insidious, you know what I mean, than threatening. I mean, they'll get to the threats if they have to, but they start out with the honey. Right. Really fun little caveat to that story is that BW actually was very supportive of the union push at first. Worker Mike Burton told the Chattanooga Free Times Press if the group can collect 500 signatures, it would be able to call for an election at the plant. The UAW lost a union vote back in February. Volkswagen says the union is necessary to give a voice to blue-collar workers. Because in Germany, they work regularly with unions and workers' councils. Mm -hmm. They were actually forced, like you said, by that governor to make the terms that it would be a non-union factory. They were worried that corporation would be too kind to the laborers. <laughs> you can't have that kind of reputation. This ain't Germany. Yeah. The Supreme Court killed both pieces of legislation in 1935 by arguing the bills threatened interstate commerce. I'd rather not get bogged down in a conversation about court packing, but we'll say the Dixiecrats replaced the NRA with a bill which responded directly to the outrage and thus neutered the identified threats to the master race democracy both bills represented. The National Labor Relations Act, also known as the Wagner Act, as good as it was, passed during the Second New Deal of 1935 through 1936. The Dixiecrats supported the new bill only once, quote, the laborer, empowered to join a union became defined only as those working in industry, not in agriculture. With this key concession, the bill in effect didn't apply in the South, again, which contained none of the hubs of industrial production found in the Northeast, Midwest, and West Coast. The rewritten Agricultural Adjustment Act shared very little of the radical measures of the former bill. Even without these limits, the radical elements of the NRA and AAA may have been overblown from the start. Many CIO locals under the Wagner Act organized unions on structures of seniority which restricted black workers to a narrow job category and thus developed their own race-based hierarchy. These structures emerged most prominently in Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, and Pittsburgh. Racism knew no regional bounds. I think this is something that we have to acknowledge that as we look at the resurgent movement for unionization now that American workers are getting better on and unions as a whole are getting better on. We talked about it on an episode we did recently. You know, you look at someone like Sean Fain with the UAW and he's speaking to broader issues rather than just vulgar economics, right? He's talking about societal issues on a broad basis. If our tax dollars are going to finance this transition, then labor can't be left behind. And as it stands right now, the workers are being left behind. The companies want to talk about being competitive. Yeah. It's not about being competitive. Com- competitive is, is a code word for race to the bottom. What they want is they want to pay us poverty wages so they can keep on making billions more in profits and they can keep enriching the shareholders and the CEOs and the corporate executives while the workers pay the, pay the, pay the price for it. 
I've made the point before, but, you know, working with local unions, speaking to local union organizers here, you know, there's a lot more on the table rather than just getting your economic concerns taken care of. It's like healthcare for trans people. All these things matter now. So we have come a long way. So I think we can see an even better union movement now outside of all of the structures imposed by Congress and limitations imposed by Congress at this point in time. And it's again, it's people demanding it and calling for it right through lived experience and realizing that, hey, I'm working with my union sibling. This is what they need. And what's good for them is good for me. Right. Yeah, it was really cool to see Sean Fain quoting Malcolm X. As Malcolm X once stated, if a person tells you they want freedom, but in the next breath will tell you what they won't do to get it, that person doesn't believe in freedom. We have to be willing to stand up and get our demands by any means necessary. So how far are you willing to go? Are you willing to go the distance? Are you willing to stand in solidarity with people you don't know across the entire country? Yeah, absolutely. Incredible. I interviewed Nelson Lichtenstein, who Lichtenstein rather, who wrote a book uh, about the Clinton years recently, and and one of the things he said is that even up until the '90s, one of the biggest obstacles to any kind of progressive change was this hemorrhage between organized labor and the broader left, and a lot of it, unfortunately, did come down to quote unquote social issues, or today what we would call identity politics, and that has gotten better. Like, you know, you look at the Starbucks union, or even today, I just saw this Italian American union association tweeting against Columbus day. Oh yeah. 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 It's a generational change. takes a long time, but I think that's, that opens up a ton of possibilities. The fact that you would have those things in sync. Although the master race democracy curtailed the revolutionary possibilities of the new deal, movements on behalf of worker and black rights pushed and earned an important recognition from the federal government. The Dixiecrats themselves, though racist to their core, came to favor American liberalism over outright fascist authoritarianism. The union between these movements, though brief, represented real tangible change in the lot of poor working class people. After his election, the Roosevelt administration nominated what became known in the media as the Black Cabinet. Calling these advisors a cabinet overstates the informal group's executive power, but they did stand close to the incoming administration as advisors and as a potent symbol of the emerging Black Democratic Coalition. In all, 45 men and women made up the cabinet. These, mostly bourgeois and petite bourgeois middle-class activists and intellectuals, wrote bills and position papers which, after relevant congressional review, did become policy on the ground. In addition, members of this cabinet received appointments to the bureaucracies which executed the new alphabet agencies. Two members of the cabinet, Robert Weaver, became the advisor of Negro Affairs in 1935, and Mary McLeod Bethune became the director of Negro Affairs in the National Youth Administration within the Works Progress Administration in 1935. While this might sound minor, especially in the rear view, this was monumental to have black Americans at the head of bureaucracies of the federal government. In these positions, they held the final say on who to hire and where to direct their budgets. They hired hundreds of thousands of black workers while funding the construction of clinics, green spaces, housing, 
and schools in predominantly black, brown, and working class neighborhoods. That sounds like the kind of minority representation that we would want, right? That actually enact change within the communities that they're most concerned about and that they come from. Like to actually go out and take care of business in these neighborhoods. I think this is something that we're dealing with today where, you know, we see people put in positions of power that kind of check a box in terms of identity, but they ultimately continue to serve ruling class interests without really addressing the needs of the communities that they come from. And that is like the trap of idpole liberalism today. And maybe it was a little bit different then, or at least in this specific example. I'm pointing at big media figures or people that were well-documented. These may be somewhat exceptions, but these exceptions have been held up as historical antecedents to movements that became much larger afterwards. Even if you can dismiss this as not representative, it's still representative in that this is what people looked up to. This really changed the ideas of a lot of young men and women that saw people that looked like them taking action for their betterment. I'm looking at the fact of hired hundreds of thousands of black workers. Mm. That's tangible benefits to that community. Getting a job in the post office and becoming a middling class person means the world to somebody that previously was destitute because of the Great Depression. We can't undersell the fact that the government coming in and providing a livelihood means everything. And this farce that we're dealing with right now with Biden, I mean, as we talked about in our episode on the climate core, we're talking about 20,000 jobs total. We don't even know what those jobs are going to look like yet. Yeah, hopefully that's some symbolic value, but it's going to be yeah, a very far cry from the CCC or a lot of these New Deal programs, which, yeah, as you indicated, employed just a tremendous amount. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of problems with the New Deal when it came to housing loans and discrimination, many northern cities. But as far as jobs, yeah, it, it made a significant impact for a lot of black Americans. And uh, when people like Jim Clyburn say that Roosevelt was bad for African Americans, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the, the term the black vote. But if you look at like the raw number of black Americans who voted for Roosevelt, there's like a 40 point swing from 1932 to 1936. So clearly they liked something he was doing. No, absolutely. I mean, this isn't to dismiss what was done, right? I think it's just to say that they were operating within these bounds, right? And they eased the tensions that exist within this system as it's predicated upon this master race democracy. But it could never fully resolve the issues that exist within the fundamentals here because it preserves capitalism as the foundation of the entire system. And even these organizations had a lot of problems. Like they were very individualized. Even though they were federal programs, there was huge local oversight. So in a place like, for example, New York City, there might be actual actions to attain black votes for the local Democratic Party boss. But if you're in Tennessee and you're creating the TVA, there's a lot less motivation to capture the black vote there. Instead, they're giving those jobs to white rural workers that have lost in their farm because of agricultural industrialization. So these things were not executed evenly on top of there being certain examples that are stood up above others. Although limited by racist structures, the work of the Black Cabinet created real, tangible benefits for the Black working class and provided among the first post-Reconstruction examples of prominent Black political actors within the structures of government. Writing in 1973, Ralph J. Bunch, the first Black man to earn a PhD in political science from an American university and a fierce contemporary critic of the New Deal, wrote, quote, 
Positions held under the New Deal represented a radical break with the past because of their novelty and the entirely different character of the appointee as well as the method of appointment. W.E.B. Du Bois remarked, The New Deal, quote, gave the American Negro a kind of recognition in political life which the Negro had never before received. Incensed by this reputation, our man Theodore Bilbo sponsored the Greater Liberia Act to Congress in 1939 in hopes of having every black American naming members of the black cabinet and for her crime of speaking against segregation, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt deported to Liberia. The bid failed to gain enough co-sponsors to be put to a vote. And I think that gets back to our question of overt fascism. That something that was so overtly fascist in nature could not get that kind of support because people really were reading the tea leaves. The Democratic Party, as its coalition, was radically changing. They needed that buy-in. It's just interesting to me, said Liberia, which is founded by former American slaves, kind of a yeah, separatist idea of civilization. Yeah, that was also an early pet project of Abraham Lincoln. He was a big right. supporter of the Liberian project yeah. to bring it all full circle. And just like painting with a, such a broad brush, do the population here that's lived here and bled here and died here, do they necessarily want to go to Liberia? <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. I have a feeling he wasn't that concerned. No, he wasn't. That's the point, right? Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention all the people in Liberia who, you know, right. were had to deal with this influx of people come from the United States. To the question, yeah, I think, I don't know if uh, that kind of coalition, if Roosevelt had been like a staunch civil rights advocate, would there be a New Deal? Who knows? I think there's a case to be made that, that it wouldn't have happened was at least positive to have people like Eleanor Roosevelt pushing and testing the limits of his positions on, on civil rights. Ultimately, like we're dealing with what happened. I mean, it's fun sometimes to kind of speculate with what could have been, right? But I think like, to your point, Anders, these were the material conditions of the time in the system that we had. There was no socialist or communist revolution to completely upend the system that was imminent at that point in time. And this is kind of what he had to do. I mean, from like a real, real politic perspective. These were the contradictions. Is this the best we could have gotten? I don't know. It's definitely better than we could have gotten. That's for sure. I mean, if Lindenberg had become president, it would have been a very different country we would be living in. Yeah. yeah. I said we weren't, we're not going to do this too much, but like if he didn't feel compelled to appoint Truman to appease the Southern Dixiecrats to be his vice president, what happens after that? Oh, you know? <laughs> yeah. What if he had died three years earlier and Henry Wallace would have become president? I mean, these are the things that somebody like Speaker of the House is going to sit around and write novels about, right? <laughs> to bring it back to like the main thrust of what we're talking about is like, okay, Henry Wallace is a guy, but how is Henry Wallace going to come in and kind of rally the forces that are, have been pushing and talking and in Roosevelt's ear all along? How is he going to rally them to even push for more? It's not about Henry Wallace, the guy. It's about him as a leader, which is, I think, the question we should be asking about people that we, you know, should ostensibly be our representative leaders right now. How should you be acting in this moment in terms of galvanizing a movement, acting as a sounding board, acting as a megaphone for the people on the street that you have been brought to power by? Yeah, I think the interesting thing about, about Wallace is you have, towards the end of World War II, especially like mass strikes in the United States, like a very militant labor situation that's been totally memory-hold. Roosevelt 
was very good at maneuvering with that and not getting too close to it, but also not totally isolating himself from it. And then later you had Truman who to just know how to handle it and didn't try and cohere that into a symbiotic relationship with his power. I think maybe Wallace would have, but that's a, a good thing to consider as well is just in general is when you have a movement like that, how does it coordinate with the sympathetic people or bodies in the state? And how do you actually achieve change through that? Which they did do in Minnesota, not to toot my own my home state's horn. No, we're gonna link the article. Don't okay, worry cool. about it, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> there is real power in these positions within the United States infrastructure, within the United States structure of government. So if you get a radical governor in place that can use the National Guard to crush the owners of industry or force them to respond, it can be a radically positive thing. I mean, that's what happened in 1939 with the miners' strike in eastern Kentucky. Roosevelt threatened to call the National Guard to put down the industry and force them to recognize the union. And it worked. Now, would somebody besides Roosevelt do that? I, I'm not sure, but he was in position to do that and made that choice. He didn't have to make that choice. And it was the people on the ground that really made that possible. The fact that those miners have been striking for upwards of eight years at that point to try to get their union recognized. So under the New Deal, the material conditions for black and working class Americans improved. Real wages increased. More workers gained pensions. And they felt more secure in their work, even as these limited benefits represented, at best, incremental rather than revolutionary change. While it's hard to imagine how a revolutionary deal might have shook out, it's much easier to imagine the turn towards outright fascism, which never materialized. Although the Nazi disgust of people of African descent didn't hold the attention of the Dixiecrats, the Nazi party rallied against black people and culture with an eye towards convincing the Dixiecrats to go full fascist. The Nazi party's ideological paper, Die Weitcham, reprinted translations of speeches given by the Ku Klux Klan's imperial wizard on the dangers of, quote, mongrelization in the 1920s, accompanied by the editor's announcement that, N-words, would be banned from the Fourth Reich. In 1935, the Nuremberg Laws applied to black people in German life, and in 1937, the government began sterilizing children deemed to be of mixed-race parentage in the Rhineland a space occupied by French colonial troops from Africa since the Treaty of Versailles. Adolf Hitler himself became enamored in 1937 with Gone with the Wind and spoke of it quite frequently. Whether or not he knew the star Leslie Howard was a British Jew is unknown. A number of prominent Dixiecrat politicians and media outlets expressed affinity between the Dixie and Nazi systems of master race democracy. The Memphis, Tennessee paper Commercial Appeal sympathized with the Nazi wish to, quote, live on terms that are tolerable, end quote, and observed Hitler's articulation of grievance were, quote, similar to what the South said after the Civil War. The Charleston, South Carolina paper, the Charleston News and Courier, concurred in 1938, writing, quote, we Southerners are as hostile to democracy as Hitler is because we are unwilling for the Negro masses to vote and have a part in governing us. Senator Robert Reynolds of North Carolina founded the Vindicators in 1939, keep America out of Nazi affairs and protect white Protestantism. Black people, Jews, and Catholics need not apply. 
I mean, is this so different from attempts now to gerrymander districts to and disenfranchise black people? It's a different form. You know, I mean, this is just an expression in a newspaper, right? But like, I think what we're seeing now play out is just a current manifestation of that same sentiment. These structures still exist. Right. We have gotten better on a lot of fronts, but the fundamentals are still there. And now that the uh, Voting Rights Act has been effectively neutered by the the Supreme Court, it's seeming like it's kind of turning back in that direction. I just want to say, like, I feel like lurking in the background of a lot of this stuff internationally is the eugenics phenomenon, which was very prominent up until this time, where it was kind of beyond race. People were discerning what parts of the population were desirable or undesirable based, of course, on race and ethnicity, but also IQ, height, weight, criminality, brain size. Brain size. That really didn't end until people learned about the Holocaust, even through the war. Like this was a, a very prominent way of just viewing humanity. And you needed the visceral imagery of people being slaughtered based on their ascriptive identity to realize that this is a rotten ideology. But I really think that permeates social policy at this time. Yeah, I might go even further, and this might just be the pessimist in me, and say that that ideology still operates in a lot of the structures that were created around this time. So this is when the federal bureaucracy is just exploding, when police forces are being formed. This is when they gain their respectability as police forces. Mm. And that's not a coincidence that that ideology is in play and continues to be seen within these structures of power. They don't just go away as soon as they become undesirable. They just perpetuate as long as the root rot is not stripped. We make the example very easily, and I think everybody on our, on our side of the political coin or whatever you want to call it would agree with this, but like we're always drawing the comparison, the through line between slavery and the prison industrial complex, right? Like to your point, Levi, a lot of these things, the, the root ideology is still there, which again, we're talking about a liberal capitalist country here, but that same sentiment, that same impetus is just taking a different form and it's dressed up in a different way. but. Ultimately, the motivating factors, racial class, are still there. We don't have AI measuring people's skulls, but we do have them being racist. (laughs) And that's not a coincidence. They're picking up on our patterns. Right. And to be clear, I I don't think that, yeah, eugenics as a a lens has disappeared at all. I I mean, this is perhaps a subject for another episode, but I think in mental health, especially, and a lot of medicine, it's still very, very prevalent. I think the entire diagnosis, controversial opinion, but the, the autism as a diagnosis and a phenomenon, I think, is a eugenic concept and, and one we should move past. You know, don't want to get caught in that can of worms. But you said it from the beginning when you started your point. You said you're, it's re-manifesting, right. right? And it's just like the same thing manifesting in different ways. Yeah. There's a lot of great writing about that in terms of what is the hospital, what is the prison, what is the clinic? that Michel Foucault has really done a lot of great work on that deserves a lot more attention in Marxist circles than it gets. In apparent contradiction, Dixiecrats represented the earliest voices for anti-Nazi military intervention because of their commitment to American master race democracy, not in spite of it. While Nazi sympathies appeared in many Southern newspapers, 
Eric Katmelson argued, quote, such positions, though, were uncommon and exceptional. It doesn't mean they're not representative, but it does mean they're uncommon to be expressed. More representative might be the Grove Hill, Alabama paper, Clark County Democrat, which published the statement that Nazi and Klan ideology, quote, are similar enough to cause self-respecting Americans to hang our heads in shame. Even more often, the Nazis' blunt race science and state-sponsored acts of violence allowed Southern papers to take the high road because their master race democracy kept vigilante violence illegal and allowed black peoples to live free and happy lives so long as they knew their place. Returning to Senator Theodore Bilbo, he once wrote to a group accusing him of being a fascist, quote, the mere fact that I believe in racial purity, which every decent and self-respecting Negro ought to believe in, does not make me a fascist. In fact, it made him an American. Senator Robert Reynolds, for his crime of advocating for Nazi collaboration, became so vilified, even among Dixiecrat politicians, that he chose not to run for re-election in 1944. His vindicators withered away. After all, the logic might go, why argue your government must ally with the Nazi party to protect the political dominance of the white race if Congress already did so without risking American liberal democracy? We already have it pretty good over here. <laughs> the reluctance to sort of identify with uh, German Nazism in the United States, I wonder how much of that is a hangover from the First World War. I didn't even think of that. That's definitely got to be playing its part. Yeah. That Germans aren't even white to these people. Right. Which is ironic because I'm th pretty sure Germans, I mean, you guys are in uh, Western Pennsylvania, maybe the, I think the largest plurality of, of white Americans are, have German descent, especially in, you know, the 19-teens. That was, they very quickly, very successful propaganda campaign at demonizing Germans. It didn't seem as prominent perhaps in the Second World War, but can understand why people would be in the KKK, but be like, Nazis, they're, they're German. Ugh. <laughs> this is this is a bit tangential to your point, but just to show, I guess, like the power of propaganda. I remember seeing one piece of World War One propaganda that decried national health care because the quote unquote Krauts had it. <laughs> it was paid for by American insurance companies. That anti-German sentiment in many different areas was definitely a hangover from that. That's a great point. This is kind of silly, but in 1891, Pittsburgh started spelling Pittsburgh without an H, and it was re remanded by the federal government because they wanted to de-Germanify city names. <laughs> it didn't take, obviously. You still spell Pittsburgh with an H, but that's why no other Pittsburgh in the country is spelled with an H. Really? Wow. There was heavy anti-German sentiment in the lead-up to World War I. Yeah. So German Nazi politician and agents became infuriated by the rebuff and condemnation of the Dixiecrats. When Nazi Germans appealed to the Confederate history of rebellion against the American government, Southern politicians to the Nazis' confusion, responded with patriotic fervor. Distinguished black American historian John Hope Franklin wrote, a section of white Southerners, quote, rushed upon tragedy by making virtues of their vice. Dixiecrats, their honor insulted, became the earliest supporters of intervention against belligerent Nazi Germany. The Nazis didn't realize the core contradiction of American democracy. The Confederacy may have lost the war, but they won the peace. In short, while the racist Congress curtailed New Deal challenges from the left, the same master race democracy acted as a prophylactic 
against New Deal challenges from the right. They won. They saved capitalism. So taking this to today, we're in a period of great political flux. There's a lot of uncertainties. We don't have a Great Depression on us right now, but nobody would have predicted the events of this weekend. Things really are up in the air right now. We don't know what the future is going to look like. So what do we learn from how to work with this democracy that we recognize as fundamentally flawed? How do we work with a DSA member elected to Congress? How do we get somebody like that in actual positions of power and what should they do in those positions of power? These questions might actually sound kind of far-fetched, but we have to be prepared for the sea change, the realities that might be around the corner. If for no other reason, then people on the right have a pretty clear action plan. Mm. <laughs> well, there's a lot there. I think, uh, I mean, there's that famous Roosevelt quote where he's like, my greatest accomplishment, as it turns out, who would have thought, is, is saving capitalism. And, uh, you know, that gets cited a lot in left-wing critiques of the New Deal. But I, I believe I've heard some historians talk about that. The context of that is what he really meant is saving it from fascism, which was uh, more of a live threat than a socialist revolution at that point, even at that point, unfortunately. And, you know, I often feel like, well, that's not that relevant to today. We don't have that same kind of threat. But then sometimes I, I'm not so sure. As to the, the DSA question, it's it's hard to strike the right balance um, because there's two different models I see that we don't want to, to emulate. One is um, total capitulation and just uh, the the Fetterman mode. If, if you you know you're good on a lot of economic issues, but totally willing to give up any pretense to opposing apartheid in other parts of the world or opposing the. U.S. relationship with Israel. I think that's the coward's way out. But I also think we can't self-marginalize. And uh, this is a question I ask myself a lot is, and even as a, a podcaster, which I'd say, I'll ask myself, like, does this help the movement? Whatever I'm doing, does it help the movement? Does it help build socialism in the United States? And I would say, as a podcaster, about eight times out of 10, there is no effect what we do or say on a podcast really hasn't makes no difference to the broader socialist movement. There's one time out of 10 where maybe we can help. It can complement an organizing project. You can point people in a certain direction. And then there's another one time out of 10 where it, it actually can hurt, where you, you are getting people to cut themselves off from IRL organizing and say, well, this whole bunch is this one rat and apples spoils this this whole bunch of whatever uh organizing project is happening in the real world and it you know if i think it's a a failure ultimately to direct people to listening to you uh, and having your politics you know dictated that way and just having it purely as like a media consumer it's a failure if you're if your audience ends up doing that and not actually organizing in the real real world so that that's the question i always try to to ask myself, bring it to Bowman, this is maybe not the best thing to say here, but I honestly kind of regret getting involved in that mm. set on the podcast because I made that 
determination that uh, it, I just didn't feel that expelling him from DSA, which was the call at that point from certain quarters, I don't, I didn't think that would really further the movement. The reason I regret getting involved in it because I didn't actually understand the full span of his voting record. The the controversy came when he voted for Iron Dome funding. To me, that that demands an accountability process. I don't think you should vote for Iron Dome funding. It frees up more funds for other parts of the IDF. But to me, that is still a big difference between that and giving money to the IDF proper, which I then learned he, he had voted to do as well. So I think um, that's an important context. But with that situation in particular, I just found that a lot of the calls for expulsion were from a particular corner of DSA, the organization I'm in. It was a Trotskyist collective that was trying to undermine the organization, and I think in many ways still are. I felt the need to oppose because I just didn't think it would be good for the organization or the movement. That, to be clear, that was not good for me, for you know a lot of my fans to hear me say that. You know, would have benefited me to go along with the calls for expulsion. But ultimately, two years later now, the difference I think it's important to to state the difference was between outright expulsion immediately or declining to reendorse, which is ultimately what happened and what I support. I think it's important to keep that in context. There were very few people saying we should tolerate Congress members voting to send funds to the IDF. The question was, how do you deal with it? And what is the most strategic way to go about that? And that's the reason why I, I supported that. And I think in general, yeah, it's always a question of how do we stay true to our principles, have solidarity with places like Palestine, while at the same time not self-marginalizing. And it's a very complicated question. It often is. And um, it's just one we have to be serious about. So full disclosure for you, Anders, I was part of DSA at the time that all went down. I'm actually with PSL now. Upon reflection upon that moment, I think what you're getting at right now is ultimately the correct question to be asking we can expand upon this, but it's about organizational accountability. It's not about like that individual guy in the moment. Mm -hmm. It's just like, how do you get better as an organization from there? What is your organization and how do you keep people accountable to the tenets and principles of that organization while understanding what that question is in the context of what your organization is trying to do? And I know that is dynamic. Ultimately, I think that is the correct question and the right way to reflect upon that. Thank you. Maybe it says more about me, but I remember hearing your take on that and really thinking that it was pretty nuanced because you laid out certain requisites that you said that he's good on certain issues. He's not good on this issue. And if he doesn't show any inclination towards getting better, given these threats, then that's grounds for worse behavior. When we're working with leftist individuals within the structures of a government that we understand to be in conflict directly with our ideology, we have to constantly understand that it's they're living contradictions. They are literally part of a system that we understand to be vile. So their actions are so incredibly limited within that space. Where do we allow them slack and where do we really hold them to account? And I think we were getting at it earlier in terms of what has changed since this era. What are the things that we really need to hold them to? And we're talking about sexual identity, gender, race, Palestine, these are things that we cannot... Imperialism generally. These things are things we cannot allow them to move an inch on. 
Bowman voted for this funding, and I believe it was, what, four other people voted against it? Those symbolic acts are actually all that more important because they are symbolic acts. If he's not even willing to take these symbolic acts, then what is he going to do when the actual hammer is down? I give them a lot of credit, to my own chagrin, for existing in this space where they take probably all the hate in the world. But I also don't want to get them off the hook. They decided to take those positions. Nobody forced them to do it. To the point, and Levi, those are all, I share the sentiment with that as well. I think, Anders, to go back to something you said about, you know, what we're doing here right now, right, in terms of like an organizing mechanism. One thing we do on our podcast all the time, and I know you guys do as well, go out and organize, right? Don't scream your opinion about fucking Bowman on Twitter and then log off and be done. Go join the local DSA and make your voice heard and participate in the democratic process of the organization and actually get involved and make a difference in that way. If you want to see a change there or go join a different organization, whatever it is, get involved in organizing. It's not enough to just state your opinion on social media and then walk away and then you've done your political work for the day. That's not it. That's going to do nothing. That is less than nothing. That is to your point counterproductive. And that is exactly the kind of shit that we don't want people to imbibe in. If you imbibe in that, I don't want you to listen. I don't even want your listen. I don't want it. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take those listeners, by the way, for the record. But <laughs> <laughs> we don't have that many anyway, buddy. So don't worry. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Something I do think is really important to look at, too, on this question of elected officials and accountability is that co-optation does not happen on a linear plane. Right. It's very common for for whatever political tendency, whatever pressure group is trying to influence a member of, of Congress or any elected official. It's never as simple. Sometimes it is often is not as simple as like, well, they start out good and slowly they get bad. Sometimes it's it's the other way around, but often it's just jumping around. And I think Bowman is an interesting case study on, on this, because even after no longer being endorsed by DSA, he has gotten somewhat better on the issue of Palestine. A lot of that, uh, frankly, I think has to do with um, the demographics of his district after redistricting. But that's just important to remember is that these people are responding to all kinds of pressure points and we have to be a, a strong one and pull them in our direction. You know, there are going to be times where the most strategic thing to do is cut ties. But it's not this traitor narrative where somebody is like just slowly becoming evil. They're going to do evil things and then they're going to jump back and do good things sometimes on the same issue. It's a very fluid and dynamic situation. Just distill it all down to this individual again goes back to what we're talking about off the top. That's something that we don't want to do. We want leaders that represent the movement and you can be that or we should have a movement strong enough to replace you. Right. You don't get our support. We'll get somebody in there that will. And that that is part of the grassroots building that requires people being part of that and pushing that. Because you want people to feel the pain. You're not going to uphold our values after we did all this time phone banking, knocking doors, doing outreach for you. You're not going to have that anymore. And you're not going to get fucking reelected again next time because you don't have it. Yeah. And I think that's in likely what's going to happen in, um, in DC. There's where I lived for a couple of years. There's a council candidate who's DSA endorsed and he just voted for a uh, detainment bill for like teens immediately get detained, even though this is something DSA opposes. And as in uh, Chicago, with another council person who voted for uh, an austerity budget, the local chapters have censured these people. And in the case of, of Zachary Parker in D.C., I think there's a good chance he will not get elected again. 
But for every Zachary Parker, there's a uh, Janice Lewis George, to use uh, local DC politics as an example, someone who knows that she depends on DSA and will not buck the organizational line, even on Palestinian issues, uh, which are very local uh, as well as international. So yeah, I mean, you can find examples in, in different directions. But again, I think the important thing is, is that you're taking a clear-eyed view of the political situation and uh, making a principled strategic choice that doesn't self-marginalize. I think that's a pretty good place to wrap it up. That was our fifth entry into the New Deal series. Anders, thanks so much for joining us, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, you got anything to plug that you're working on uh, on the podcast or in terms of output and journalism? I was about to correct you and say that I'm not a journalist, but I guess I should call myself one because I, yes, have a piece we mentioned in Jacobin about uh, Elmer Benson, a former Labor Party governor, which is a f- progressive third party in Minnesota, who was a socialist governor for a couple, just two years in the 1930s. And uh, I have some also some other journalism as well, I guess you could say about uh, Jesse Ventura and his time as governor of Minnesota. I, that's not the only thing I write about, in all fairness, but those are my two <laughs> most recent pieces. <laughs> we know where your heart yeah. is, man. Yeah. <laughs> 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 For better or worse, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, Pod Damn America is my podcast. I do with Jake Flores now. It's on uh, anywhere you find podcasts. And we also have a Patreon where we try to do like in-depth episodes often uh, like this one. Please check that out. And you can follow me on Twitter at Anders Lee here. Thanks for that, man. For the listeners, I'm sure you guys know Pod Damn America if you're listening to us, but uh, they're much funnier than us. So check them out too. <laughs> so, <laughs> we'll post all those links to the article and obviously to the podcast. But thanks again for joining, man. This was a lot of fun. Really great conversation. Levi, thanks for putting this together. And for all you listening out there, as we've been harping on all night, go out and get organized. We don't care really what it is. Don't be destructive. Get offline. Plug into this modem. Get out in the streets. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Adios, paisanos. Adios, paisanos.